not sure what you think of Harry Potter, um, but whatever else you think about it, it is a phenomenon, a, a defining book of our generation, story of our generation, or at least the previous generation. And uh, one particular book, The Order of the Phoenix, begins with Harry, um, slightly older, slightly more angsty, but still the hero. And uh, as a couple of dementors are casually wandering around the neighborhood, he heroically, um, in self-defense, manages to take them on. The story goes on that as he is um, uh, accused falsely of using this magic um, uh, in a trivial way, um, so there are people out to get him. And so we see then a scene where certain powerful people are out to get him and there's a, a trial. There's a trial which is somewhat dodgy. They change the place, they change the time, and it's looking pretty hopeless. And just at the point at which it's looking most hopeless, Harry's head teacher swoops in, saves the day, brings along a key witness, and Harry lives to fight another day. The reader breathes a sigh of relief. And the reason I mention that is, is not just because one of the heroes in there is a teacher, although that helps. Um, but one of the reasons I mention that is because that's a theme that we love. This idea of someone being falsely accused, maybe even framed, and we're on the side of that person. We want justice. We're drawn into the story. And we're desperate for that person to, to be proven right. The danger of our passage this morning is actually because we're so familiar with it. It is the single most famous story in all of history. We know how it finishes. We know it finishes that Jesus ends up on the cross. And the danger is we skip over that feeling of injustice. So before we come to our passage this morning, let's, let's pray that God would help us to see um, this passage afresh and he would speak to us this morning through it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear the words written by John, the trial of Jesus, we feel a heaviness. We get a sense of injustice, but we recognize that this is a story with which we're familiar. And we ask, Lord, that as we come to it this morning, that you would speak to each one of us. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us. In Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen. Good morning. Um, if, uh, if I haven't met you before, my name's Johnny. Um, even if I have met you before, my name's Johnny. I'm a teacher, which um, explains a slight lack of immune system at the moment, so sorry about that. Um, I'm one of the elders here, and um, if you're new here, a very warm welcome to you, particularly if this is, um, or if this is your first time in a while. Um, you're, you're joining us in the middle of a series as we're looking at the end of John's Gospel in the run-up to the crucifixion. John's Gospel, which we've just had read to us, is a narrative. Um, it's a, a story written by one of Jesus' best friends. Um, and so that's the way we're meant to read it, as, as a story. Obviously, what makes this story different from Harry Potter or anything else is that this is true. And so it, it has a greater significance for us. But John, who was a relatively uneducated fisherman, um, is writing, and he's a powerful storyteller. Um, he uses um, some imagery which we need to pick up on. Um, and he also uses some theology which we need to be aware of as, as we go through this. Um, and this morning we're going to be looking at Jesus' trial. Um, and although we began our um, passage this morning in chapter 19, we do need to look back a few verses to properly understand the context. Um, 
And uh, last week, Dave was speaking to us, and we're going to jump into the passage a little bit there, um, because this is, just to give the, set the scene, um, on, the, on the Thursday, Jesus was with his disciples. The Thursday evening, he's um, with the disciples uh, in the garden, and then he's arrested. Thursday night, there's, a, there's an illegal trial with the Sanhedrin, the, um, the Jewish chief priests and teachers of the law and so on. And they decide that he's guilty. And so early on the Friday morning, they turn up at Pontius Pilate's house. And, uh, and they say to Pilate, come out, we've, we've got a prisoner for you. If you look at me down in verse 31, Pilate comes out and says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. And so first bit of the passage we need to be aware of here is that this is crystal clear. There's no beating around the bush. The Jews want an execution. That is the only reason why Pilate is in this story is because he has to be the one to give the seal of approval. If he doesn't, then they get in trouble because uh, only the Romans have the right um, because the Romans don't want to give the right to just anyone to execute people. So they say, right, if, if anyone's going to be executed, it's on our watch. And so the Jews have decided Jesus needs to be executed. So they need Pilate to do it. That is the only reason that he's here. Dave then took us through the conversation that Jesus has with Pilate, where Pilate is trying to establish Jesus' guilt or innocence. And we're not going to spend any time in that this morning. But we did pick up this idea that Pilate did engage with him to a certain extent, but not fully. Um, and as we um, pick up in a moment in verse 38, we'll see that um, Jesus has made some claims, made some challenges about truth. And Pilate responds, what is truth? And in one sense, he's not engaging fully, but in another level, he's, he's actually decided what the truth is. And we see that from his, um, his decision about Jesus' guilt or innocence. So let's look back then, starting at verse 8. 38, sorry, of chapter 18. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release you... To you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Jesus took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Um, Emily read it much better than I did, but I was trying to draw your attention to the fact that Pilate, from verse 38 to 19, verse 7, what's he doing? He's declaring Jesus' innocence. Not once, not twice, but three times. Verse 38, I find no basis for a charge against him. Verse 4, I find no basis for a charge against him. Verse 6, 
I find no basis for a charge against him. John wants us to be crystal clear here that Jesus is innocent of the charges brought against him. He wants to make that crystal clear to us. And as we see the innocence of Jesus, it doesn't quite play out how we expect. The Hollywood depiction that we expect is that the innocence is declared. The crowds are outside cheering, greeted by the family and friends. Not so much for Jesus. And as we look through, we're giving an insight not just into the system, into the society at the time, but into Pilate. What happens? First, at the first time where the Jews reject his, uh, his innocence, Pilate tries to manipulate the decision and says, okay, well, maybe I'll release a prisoner to you and uh, hoping to kind of persuade them, probably, um, that Jesus should be released. Instead, they choose Barabbas, who looks that last week. Second occasion, Pilate tries to appease the Jews by having him flogged. He's already decided he's innocent, but he's trying to get himself out of a situation. And he says, yep, okay, I'm going to flog him. Look, there you go. He's innocent, and I've flogged him. Surely everyone's going to be happy. Not so much. The third time, in verse 6, where the chief priests and the officials see him dressed as a king, they shout, crucify, crucify. And Pilate answers, you take him and crucify him. Um, that's, uh, that's a bit of petulance there, if, if you didn't quite pick that up. It's, um, it's the equivalent of, if I'm driving along, and, uh, and Anwen, my three-year-old, is sitting in the back seat and saying, Daddy, you're going too fast, or Daddy, you're not driving very well. It's the equivalent of me saying, you drive then, um, because she can't drive. And in the same way, Pilate says, you crucify him, but he knows full well that they can't. That's the whole reason why they're here, is that they don't have the right. So we see that petulance the third time. And we see then that even though Pilate has declared Jesus' innocence three times, it's not enough. And so what happens? Well, the Jews change the charge a little bit. How do they change it? Well, up until then, they've been saying he's the king, suggesting he's a threat to Rome, a threat to the empire. But here they suddenly say, verse 7, because he claimed to be the son of God. Now notice Pilate's reaction. He's scared. He's afraid. Why is he afraid? We can make a guess here. Maybe he's superstitious. Maybe it's actually that as um, he's been talking to Jesus, he's been getting the sense that he isn't just your average Joe. Maybe he's realizing that, that he has been um, not just uh, putting someone on trial, but, but falsely kind of flogging them and so on, and recognize that maybe this is someone a bit more significant. And so we see from verse 8 to 11, um, a conversation where Jesus, uh, where Jesus talks to Pilate, and the tone of the conversation is very different. The first conversation, where Jesus is being quizzed by Pilate, um, Pilate's in control. He doesn't seem to be too fast, talking about truth, but then makes his decision. The ante has been upped here. There's a lot of tension, okay? And all of a sudden, Pilate's not so much in control. He's afraid. We pick up in verse 8. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power to either free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you 
is guilty of a greater sin. And so in our second section of today's reading, we've got this idea. Jesus is innocent, but the judges are guilty. There's a lot in this little conversation between Pilate and Jesus. Um, we could pick a, a lot of things out, but we're just going to pick two for now. Um, power. Big theme in this whole passage. Um, and we see something almost laughable. Have a look at verse 10. Don't you realize I have power to either free you or to crucify you? And we just recognize that he's saying this in the context of being afraid because he's starting to realize he doesn't have power. We're going to talk more about Pilate and his lack of power later on. We'll come back to that. But the second thing we need to see is this. Pilate has already declared Jesus' innocence three times. He's already declared his innocence. This next little exchange, Jesus confirms that he's innocent. How do we know that? Because he says that there is a sin being committed. And not only a sin, but notice the word, the phrase he used at the end of verse 11. The one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Now that's going to get Pilate on edge. Why? because he's talking about a greater sin, which implies there's a lesser sin. So who handed him over? Well, the Jews, chiefly um, Caiaphas, who's the high priest, handed him over. He's guilty of the greater sin. But the suggestion there is that Pilate is guilty of the lesser sin. How hard does it hit Pilate? It's hard for us to know. We get the sense in the following verse, having not been taking the trial too seriously so far, that he does now commit a bit more. And we see that verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. So maybe it does hit him a bit harder. But we can see there's a bit of a crescendo here as we go through. And we can see, um, as we come to our final verses of the passage this morning, Pilate, although he wants to set him free, his resolve isn't enough. And his feeble attempts at fighting are overwhelmed by forces, by forces more powerful. So let's... Read the final verses, verse 12 to 16 together, before we think about exactly what John wants us to see from this passage. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. It's the final section of our passage this morning. It almost turns into a grotesque comedy. Notice a couple of things. Just a quick reminder, if, uh, if you weren't here last week. The Jews are standing outside of Pilate's palace. Why? Well, because later on that day, that evening, there's going to be a feast, the Passover feast, one of the biggest in the Jewish calendar. And they don't want to go inside Pilate's palace because by coming into contact with non-Jews, that would make them ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, and therefore they couldn't celebrate the festival in the same way. 
So we have this bizarre idea that they're not going inside because they want to be clean. Practically frothing at the mouth, though, at this stage, the Jews accuse, they accuse Pilate of not being patriotic enough. Do you pick that up? Not being Roman enough. We've got there, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Back to the original charge, okay, of Jesus being a king, a threat to Rome. Suddenly they become quite concerned for the Roman Empire. But then we finish in verse 15 with the damning words, we have no king but Caesar. Jesus, after an illegal trial on Thursday night by the Jews, is found guilty. Okay. They bring him to Pilate, Friday morning, trial. He's found innocent three times. Jesus confirms that he's innocent, but gives us a hint that his judges are guilty. And this is confirmed in the ultimate miscarriage of justice. The death sentence of an innocent man. And so that's our passage this morning, and that's an overview which hopefully helps us to pick up some of, the, some of the things going on in the passage if we didn't get them first time around. And it's a heavy story. It's a painful story. And that's right, because this is the death of an innocent man. And we're going to see that John goes further than that, and he talks about this being the death of the most innocent man, the one who came to earth to save us. And so, as we step back, having seen what the passage is doing here, we need to ask the question, what is it that we're meant to see? What does John want us to pick up? Most of us are coming into the passage fairly cold, but John has been laying the groundwork um, for this trial scene in the opening 17 chapters. And the readers, if they've picked up on those, will, will already have a number of key ideas that they're meant to pick up. Here's the main idea, very simply. Jesus, the innocent king, is on trial, and there's a human response. And those are the two key things that John wants us to pick up. Um, why does it matter that Jesus is innocent? Well, actually, we get a clue right from the very beginning of uh, John's gospel, when we first see him in the flesh, as it were. And John the Baptist sees him at the River Jordan, and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jump forward to chapter 19 and Passover is heavy in the air. John is showing us that just as the Passover lamb needed to be without blemish, to be a substitute and save the lives of the Israelites, so Jesus' innocence qualifies him to be the once and for all sacrifice for all humanity. A number of you here will, will know what that reference is to the Passover lamb. Some of us won't. The theme of sacrifice in the Bible is a slightly strange one. And taken individually, it might not seem to make much sense. But here, in this passage, as we see Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, it makes sense. It comes together. If I pick out four key themes of sacrifice throughout the Bible, we see a development. Back in Genesis, we see Abraham, who has no children. He's blessed with one child. God says, I'll give you a son, even though his wife is incredibly old. 
And then God says, okay, I want you to sacrifice your son. We're left thinking, what on earth is this story about? They go up the mountain, and just before Abraham sacrifices his son, God says, stop. There's a substitute, and there's a ram. The death of one for one son. Fast forward, and we then get to the Israelites, who are leaving Israel, or leaving Egypt, I should say, um, and uh, there have been nine plagues up until this point, as Moses tries to free the Israelites. Um, and the tenth plague is the heaviest, as God says, right, Pharaoh hasn't listened. And so there's going to be death, the death of the firstborn son of each household. And he says, but Israelites, you won't have that death if you sacrifice a lamb without blemish, a perfect lamb. And if you put the blood of that lamb around the doorposts, then your family will be saved. The death of one lamb for a family. Fast forward again, and as the Israelites are given the laws, so they're, they're told about a day when they should be um, atoning for their sins. A day known as Yom Kippur, which is still, still celebrated today. And there are two goats involved. One is the scapegoat, released, set free. And the other is the goat that is sacrificed as an offering for the sins of Israel. And you get where this is going. We see the sacrifice of one for one. The sacrifice of one for a family. The sacrifice of one for a nation. And in Jesus, we have the sacrifice of one for all of humanity. And so with Passover hanging heavy in the air, John it's crystal clear that Jesus is innocent. He is the lamb without blemish. And he is the substitute. And so although the Jews, the Jews don't realize how true it is, they're right that Jesus must die. Passover lamb, the innocent king, the Passover lamb. We also have here in the passage the suffering of Jesus. And we're reminded in various ways of, um, of a prophecy which is made back in Isaiah 53. Um, you don't need to turn to it now, although in a few minutes I will get you to turn to something. Isaiah 53, this will be well known to a number of us. This is a passage known as the Suffering Servant, which is um, often read out at this time of year. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that, was brought, that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. This innocent king is the Passover lamb, who's the substitute for us. He's also the suffering servant king, the one who suffered for us. And third, this innocent king is in control. He is sovereign. And we cannot miss that in this passage, in this gospel. Um, again, um, I'd really recommend if you have a chance 
to read through John's Gospel the whole way because you'll see some of these themes coming through very strongly. But um, in short, you can see it almost divided into two. The first half of John's Gospel, Jesus constantly says, the hour has not yet come. And he has disciples encouraging him to, to go to Jerusalem to show off his miracles, show them who you are. He has other people trying to kill him and he kind of escapes. And all the time he's saying, the hour has not yet come. And halfway through the gospel, he says, the hour has come. And we're left wondering what, what, what has come, what is happening. And we see it earlier on in John chapter 18. And this would be useful for you to look at. So have a look um, just at the beginning of John chapter 18. And <coughs> excuse me, in, uh, in verse 4, we see Jesus in the garden. And it says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who do you want? So he knows all that's going to happen. Peter then tries to defend him and jump down to verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He knows. He knows what's going to happen through the trial. And yet he chooses to go through it. He chooses to drink the cup of God's wrath. So John wants us to see that this innocent king on trial is the Passover lamb, the suffering servant king, but the one who is sovereign, the one who is ultimately in control. He also wants us to see the responses to Jesus. And you see, one of the key functions of, of narrative generally is that it invites us to put ourselves in, in the shoes, or in this case, maybe the sandals, of those characters who are there at the time. And so we're invited to, to almost join in and, and be there with them. Because this story is true, it means that the challenges for the characters are also challenges for the reader. As Pilate is challenged to decide, so are we, and we'll come to that later. So the narrative is about Jesus on trial, but it flips so that it's not him on trial, but Pilate. It's not him on trial, but the Jews. It's not him on trial, but us, as we put ourselves in that place. So we've mentioned already Pilate, and I'm sorry, occupational hazard here, I've gone for some alliteration. But um, we're going to go through three characters, um, and we're going to focus especially on the third, before we start to draw to a close. Um, Pilate we've spent some time with last week, so we're not going to spend a lot of time now. But over this chapter we see that his delusion of being in control is shattered. His delusion of having power is shattered. If you have a look at verse 10, this is chapter 19. Pilate said, don't you realize I have power to either free you or to crucify you? Pilate tries to say, I'm the one with the power. I can let you go or I can crucify you. He makes his decision. Two verses later, verse 12 from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Four verses later, verse 16, finally, Pilate handed him over to be cruc crucified. Doesn't have power. He made the decision that he wanted to set Jesus free. He told him he had the power to do that, but he didn't. Or at least he didn't have the resolve. And so Pilate is Pilate the powerless here. His power proves to be a delusion. Although bizarrely, with this final act, as he hands Jesus over, he's trying to cling on to that power. Why? Because he's hoping that if he hands over Jesus, he'll still maintain some control. 
he'll still maintain power. He will avoid any riots or whatever else might have come about through it. So he's still trying to hold on to that power, even though it's proved to be a delusion. I find Pilate uncomfortable. Why? Because I see myself in him. Why do I say that? Because he, he knows the truth, doesn't he? He knows that Jesus is innocent, but he doesn't follow through. And when I see that, I think, that's too close to the bone for me. He knows the truth, but he doesn't follow through. So our first character, the second, and I'm going to be very brief with these. They don't feature heavily, but I think it's important to stop briefly at the soldiers, the sadistic soldiers, not least because it's easy to skip over the suffering of Jesus in this trial. Why do I call them sadistic soldiers? Well, after declaring Jesus innocent, but finding the crowd bloodthirsty, Pilate says, right, let's have Jesus flogged. I suspect, though, that Pilate doesn't order the soldiers to humiliate him further, to mock him, to assault an innocent and defenseless victim. And we see in the soldiers, people who just occur very briefly here, talked about in more length in other Gospels, but we see in the soldiers people who are happy to join in. And whereas Pilate seemed to um, know something after investigation, we get the sense here that the soldiers don't really care, but they're happy to join in with the abuse. And next week there'll be more, I'm sure, about Jesus' suffering, so I'm not going to dwell on that now. But it's important to see the suffering that Jesus goes through here at the hands of the sadistic soldiers. And last one, and this is where we want to spend a bit more time, because the Jews here are the driving force behind the wrongful conviction of Jesus. It's their hatred which convinces Pilate that he should put to death a man who he believes is innocent. Um, this hatred didn't just sprout up overnight. I'd love us if we had time to, to have a chance to go through the whole of John's Gospel and, and to see this. It is well worth doing. Um, but let me just skim through a few key passages um, where we see the, the Jews as, as characters in John's Gospel and see um, how they interact with various people. Um, I will get us to turn to two passages, I think, just because that would be helpful. But let me just uh, introduce us. That the very first time that the Jews appear in John's Gospel, it's right back in chapter 1. You don't need to turn to this. Um, but uh, John the Baptist is baptizing people, and the Jews from Jerusalem sends out priests to basically quiz him. Why? They're, they're a bit suspicious. There's someone here who's doing something. They want to know what's going on, and they want to check that it's okay. They want to make sure that, that they're still in control, essentially. Next chapter, chapter 2, we see uh, Jesus uh, first interacting with these Jews. And he's gone to the temple, and he's driven out the moneylenders, and he's made a royal mess of things, because he says, no, this is not how my father's temple should be. This is not right. And the Jews ask Jesus, what authority do you have to do this? Chapter 3, we have one Jew, Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus. And he opens up with this little phrase, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. We know. He's by himself, but he's saying we know because they've heard about Jesus. They've heard Jesus. And they recognize that he has authority, that his teachings have authority. 
His authority comes in other places as well. In chapter 5, Jesus heals, um, uh, heals a blind man. Sorry, a lame man. He heals a lame man and he tells him to pick up his mat and walk. Wow. A miracle. The Jews, we're not told there if it's uh, the Pharisees, we assume it probably is. The Jews say, see this man who has been healed. And they say, they say, why are you carrying a mat? It's the Sabbath. You're not meant to be carrying a mat on the Sabbath. It's painful. It's painful. They've just seen a miracle. They've just witnessed this. And clearly, as we look at the Jews, we can see that they feel threatened. They're threatened by Jesus. And the bizarre thing is, it's not always Jesus himself who threatens them. And that's how we understand that actually there's a jealousy involved here. It's not necessarily just Jesus. And let's look at the next um, uh, little section together because um, in chapter 7, verse 15, the Jews are amazed and asked, how did Jesus get such authority? And then we have a fascinating little episode here with the crowds and with the Jews. And I think that's worth us looking at. So chapter 7, verse 25. If you can flick back a few pages to find that. And this is on page 1072. So Jesus has been performing miracles. He's been teaching. He's been showing his authority. But the crowds are also aware that, isn't this someone who the, the Jews, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they don't particularly like? So what's going on here? Verse 25, let's pick up here. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly. And they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? There are questions hanging in the air. And we jump down, and we see if we could jump down to verse 31. Um, Many in the crowd believed him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. What did they react to? The whispers about him. It was the response to him. They were threatened. Last little section in chapter 7. Jump forward to verse 45. Towards the top of page 1073, if you've got the Red Bibles. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring Jesus in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who is one of their own number, asked Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. They were wrong. Um, Jonah came from Galilee, maybe other prophets. Um, They were petulant like Pilate. They were threatened. And actually even Nicodemus in here suggests that you're so concerned about the law, but isn't what you're doing illegal? So all all sorts of hypocrisy here, all sorts of inconsistency. But we're building up a picture of people who want to have control, of people who want to be at the top, and of people who are threatened by Jesus and by how people respond to him. Final passage, this is the last um, 
bit of flicking through I'll do. Chapter 11. Famous story, the death of Lazarus. And right at the end of this chapter, we see that after the death of Jesus, a number of Jews have believed. And what happens? Well, some of these Jews go back to the Jerusalem. They report um, to the Pharisees and the, the rest of the Sanhedrin and so on. And from verse 47, we see them say, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here's this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day, they plotted to take his life. Right the way through John's Gospel, we see this tension. We see it with different groups of Jews. But here in chapter 11, it's the Sanhedrin together. They decide at this point, we're going to kill him. Why? They don't doubt the miracle. Did you notice that? They said, here's this man performing many signs. They accept that he's performing signs. But they're threatened. Jealousy is part of it. I'm sure there are other things as well. But that jealousy combined with those other factors develop, they fester, until we see in chapter 19 this hatred, this utter contempt. And so we see Jesus despised and rejected. As we draw to a close, worth taking a step back Jesus has shown us that he's innocent and that's what John wants us to see Jesus is the innocent king on trial faced by a powerless pilot sadistic soldiers and jealous Jews who've come to hate him we have to ask the question how are we meant to respond the Bible works in a lot of ways it functions as a mirror Sometimes as we read it, we can um, see things revealed that show us something about ourselves. It cuts right through us, penetrating, weighing us up. Um, and just as we finish by asking this question, how we're meant to respond, I want to pause very, very briefly and just quickly step back to consider each character and each word in our sermon series. Three weeks ago, uh, Dan was looking with us at Judas and his betrayal. That was the word of the sermon there, betrayal. It seems in part to have come from greed. Two weeks ago, we looked at Peter and his denial. Betrayal and denial. Denial, as Dave showed us, is connected to his self-confidence, self-reliance. Last week, Dave looked at Pilate with us and his cowardice. 
And we saw in the passage today that that was connected to his fear of losing control. Today we come to the Jews and their hatred. And we see in their hatred how jealousy and self-importance can sprout into something ugly and horrible and not just harmful, but potentially deathly. Judas betrayal, Peter denial, Pilate cowardice, the Jews and hatred. And I don't know about you, but this description is about four characters or four sets of characters thousands of years ago. It, it shouldn't make me feel as uncomfortable as it does, but it does. Why? Well, because I recognize my own flaws in it. And I've mentioned before that I see pilots from our passage today, and it may be that there are other things that you connect with. So how does John want us to respond? Well, I think that he wants us to respond in three ways. I think he wants us to take this seriously. We're meant to take this seriously. And so it's right that we feel a heaviness. And as we come to this passage this morning, he wants us to say, no, this is something I witnessed. This is the truth. He doesn't leave it there. He wants us um, to reflect on things. And he wants us to look at the different responses to Jesus and to weigh up for ourselves what is our, what is our own response. What will we decide to do? And we're meant to do this with the facts. And it's worth saying that right at the beginning, I gave you a bit of context and said the reason we're in this story, in this trial today, is because the Jews took Jesus to Pilate and said, we want to kill him. But that's only one part of the context. And the other part of the context is, as Dan helped us to see a few weeks ago, there's the human perspective, and then there's the heavenly perspective. And the heavenly perspective is this, that, that God was in control. Jesus chose the cross. That was his choice. And you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so if you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, can I beg you please to take this seriously? John was utterly convinced that the Son of God who died in our place was Jesus. He was innocent. And partly because of his testimony, a number of people here this morning are also convinced about who Jesus is. This is worth looking into. And if you haven't done that properly before, can I ask, can I beg, can I suggest that you have a look at it this Easter? If you are a Christian here this morning, we're reminded of the wrongful conviction of Jesus, our innocent king, the Passover lamb who died in our place because he chose to. Let's respond. And that response doesn't need to be one of guilt. That response can be one filled with joy as well. And let me finish with 
some words right from the beginning of John's Gospel. Because John isn't trying to hide anything away. He's, he's uh, shamelessly biased in what he's trying to do. He's trying to convince us of the truth of who Jesus is, according to him. And, and we are also convinced by that if we agree that Jesus is the Son of God. But right at the beginning of his Gospel, he's talking about Jesus and says, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will but born of God. Heavenly Father, as we are reminded once more of Jesus who willingly suffered for us, who chose to drink from the cup of your wrath, who is the Passover lamb who died in our place. Oh God, we're blown away. And we pray, Lord, that as we hear these words, that your spirit would be at work in us, changing us. Lord God, help us to respond. Lord God, help us to be thankful that because of Jesus, we can be children of God. Because of Jesus, we have been set free. Because of his choice to suffer and die for us. We, the guilty, are declared innocent, declared righteous, declared your children. Amen.